great to be back in the house of the Lord, though, isn't it? I really, really missed you guys. So we're going to be in First Chronicles, starting in chapter 21 today. And we're going to be getting a new sermon series that I think will really be um, speaking to our hearts this morning, especially with everything that's going on in the country right now. And something that is really, really needed. And the series is called Revival Stronger Than Ever. And we're going to be looking at um, some things that were happening in, in First Chronicles today. Again, chapter 21. And as we go into that, I just want to just open up in a word of prayer and just ask God's blessing on this time. Father God, we thank you. Lord God, we ask, Father, that you just pour your spirit into us afresh, that you help us to allow your word to penetrate to the dividing of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. You help it to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts and that you help it to bind us together, Lord, in unity. Father, the, the biggest trial that we are going through right now is that everything in this planet wants to separate us. It wants to keep us apart from one another. It wants to put some sort of division in between your people. So we just rebuke that right now in the name of Jesus, and we ask for your Holy Spirit to bind us together once again as a church family. Whether it's here in this building or out in the internet world where people might be listening, we just ask for that spirit of Christian unity to fill their hearts. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. So today we're starting that new series in Revival. And Revival has a lot of different connotations, particularly in the Assemblies of God, because we think of Revival as this huge church meeting and expressive worship and people dancing and waving flags and speaking in tongues and, and doing all that kind of stuff. And there's nothing really wrong with that as long as it's coming from God and as long as it's coming from the Holy Spirit. But what revival really is, when we talk about it from a biblical turn, is revival simply means to recover something that was lost or to bring new life into something that was dying. And for many months now, our country has been shut down. We've all been separated. We've all been slaves of our TV sets because that's about all we had. All of us have probably watched half the net stuff on Netflix. I mean, we just had all this stuff in our, in our lives, and maybe we've even lost jobs. Maybe we've even been laid off. Maybe we've lost income. Maybe we've, we've started to become depressed or loneliness has set in. And it's been hard to hold on to hope. Every, every goalpost we seem to get to gets moved again. We think we're ready to score that touchdown, and all of a sudden now it's like two miles away, not just 100 yards away. And we just keep going and going and going. And for some of us, you know, that future, it just, we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel anymore. And we all know the joke about the light at the end of the tunnel. It's usually the headlight of an oncoming train. That's what it's felt like over the last year. And coupled with the events of this past week and what the promise of the weeks to come looks like, 2021 looks to be an even more eventful year than 2020. There was a, a great social media meme I saw this week. Everybody was complaining about 2020 and how bad and rough of a year it was. And 2021 starts out with a guy in a Vikings uh, 
hat sitting in the speaker's chair in the House of Representatives. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, 2021 said, you ain't seen nothing yet. But you know what? The Bible has some good news for us. I thank God for this Bible. I thank God that he, that he has given us lessons within it that can speak to every single situation that we will ever face. And to see that, let me lay a little bit of foundation this morning. We're going to be looking at events in First Chronicles. And today, I want to start with a little bit of explanation of what Chronicles is covering. Chronicles was written by Ezra, the prophet. It was written to teach us how to deal with and recover from a national crisis. It's a history book, like 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd King, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are all history books. And it's, it was placed in the Bible to show us how God deals with his people. Let me just uh, go through some of the history it's going to cover. In 606 B.C., Israel was exiled to Babylon. The Babylonians surrounded Jerusalem, laid siege to it for seven-plus years, broke down its walls, and virtually carried anybody who survived that siege off into captivity. Book of Daniel is one of those people, written by one of those people who were carried away. Those Israelites, they lost everything. They lost their homes, their positions, their jobs, their identities, their families. Everything was taken away from them when they went there. And for 70 years... Most of them lived outside of the big cities, and especially outside of Babylon, in refugee centers. But then, God used a Persian king to conquer Babylon. His name was Cyrus, and he issued an order to all the conquered nations. He said, I know Nebuchadnezzar carried you off in chains. I am freeing you. I am telling you, go back to your lands. Build your houses. Restart your economy. Worship your God. As long as you are under us, you can go and be free and do all of that as long as you send tribute back to me. So the Israelites did just that. In 536 B.C., they returned home. They packed up all their possessions and children and new families and marched 800 miles back to the Holy Land. However, as they traveled, many of their leaders began to realize something. You know what? God, ours going to Babylon in the first place was a judgment from God. Because they had gotten into such horrible idolatry. And when I talk about idolatry, we're not just talking about being too consumed with the Green Bay Packers. We're talking about idolatry that led them into gross sexual sin. We're talking about idolatry that led them to um, kill their own children and, and burn them alive. We're talking that kind of idolatry. They were into just utter and complete wickedness. And God used Babylon to judge them. And they realized that, you know what, the last 70 years has just been no fun. I mean, we were living as second-class citizens. We don't want to go through that again. So how are we going to fix this? They have a little bit of a problem. Is there's not too many people left that know how to worship God anymore. They still have some of their Torah. They still have some of their scriptures. They still have some of this stuff laying around. And a couple of trained priests, but they really don't know how to avoid getting back into this problem. So how would they recover? How would they establish patterns and morals that would help them to avoid their previous mistakes? Well, God had an answer. He sent them two spirit-filled leaders named Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Two books in your Bible. The first leader was Ezra. Ezra wasn't a builder of walls. He wasn't interested in building the city. He was a builder of hearts. He wanted people's hearts to be filled with God and, and worship him properly. He was a builder of character. Ezra led the people to rebuild the temple as their first priority. And many people ask me, is there any hope for America? I said, yes, if we follow this pattern. We get so worried about our comfort. We get so worried about making sure we elect the right person. We get so worried about all those external things that we forget to build the temple in our hearts first. Almost 70 years later, Nehemiah, once that temple was built, came to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And Ezra gave the people the word long before Nehemiah gave people the wall. And in our country, and even among people in the church, I say it again, that's why we're in the mess we're in. I think we focused so much on our safety, so much on our comfort, that we forgot to put first things first. If you are a Christian here today, Jesus is your first priority. In fact, he's not just your first priority. He is the priority. You put Jesus on a list of anything else, anything under Jesus becomes an idol. If we put Jesus back where he belongs, first and foremost, then everything else gets taken care of. He'll take care of everything else. You see, you say, Jesus, it's yours. Tell me what you want me to do. I'm just simply a steward. But for the last several years, the church, the church and many people within the church have put our hope and our faith way too much in worldly things, like politicians and the political processes. This hasn't been going on just in the last couple years. This, this has been all the way back in the 80s with the moral majority. And, they, and then they get all freaked out when it doesn't work, like God isn't working through that. Well, he never intended to work through that. He intended to work through us. And back to, back to Chronicles now, we have a biblical example of what we're talking about to show us the problem with that. And the story we're going to read about is a plague that was cut short. Have you ever done something wrong? Anybody here done something wrong ever? Have you ever done something wrong knowing it was something wrong? And he did it anyway? Good, I'm glad to see I'm not the only sinner in the room here. My name's John and I'm a sinner. Thank you for coming. We're probably all guilty of that, right? And King David, probably the greatest leader and the greatest king in Israel, he was no exception. Most of us know about his huge sins. And he failed God many times. But God still loved him. God still used him. God still blessed him in his life. And what we're going to look at in this section of Scripture will show us this morning that even though we failed, God still loves us. And he'll still use us if we can follow the lessons found in his word. And to teach us this lesson, the author of Chronicles, Ezra, selects not what we would consider the biggest sin of David's life, what was probably one of the biggest sins is his affair with um, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and then killing Uriah. That would probably be number one sin, right? We would all look at that and say, yeah, we shouldn't do things like that. But he didn't select that. He selected a small 
quote-unquote sin. As a matter of fact, probably the first five or six times of me reading this, I didn't even understand why this was even a sin. So what was this awful thing that David did? He took a census. He said, how how is is that wrong? What's wrong with taking a census? Well, let's read about this. In 1 Chronicles 21, verses 1 and 2, it says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, Go and count Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring a report back to me so that I can know their number. Now you would say, that sounds like actually a reasonable thing that a king should do. I mean, shouldn't a king know what, how many people are in his, his nation? I mean, censuses aren't bad things. I don't want you to, you know, if a census worker knocks on your door, open the door and say, get behind me, Satan, and slam the door in their face. I mean, it, it, it's not anything like that. It's useful information they're gathering. I mean, they have to know this. They have to know how many roads to build, how many schools to build, how many uh, different services they need to provide and where to provide them, and, and the congressional seats and all that. That's, that's the, what the census gives us in our day today. And, and censuses aren't all bad. I mean, after all, the book of Numbers is all a bunch of big censuses, is all they are. They're all a bunch of family lineages and censuses and all that kind of stuff. So the census itself wasn't a bad thing. But David's was, because David was using this census to prop up his own ego and to measure his greatness. If you think about it, during this time, he wasn't at war. He didn't need to really know exactly how many military-age males he had in the country. He just wanted to know how many troops that he could marshal so, so that the next time a head of state visited him, he could say, yeah, I'm such a great king. I could uh, get about a million men right now, take over your country if I wanted to. It was just a pride and ego thing. And Job, and you read anything about Job in the Bible, you know that he wasn't a very spiritual man. He had a very rare moment of spirituality. <laughs> and he knew there was no good reason for this census. So in verse 3, Job replied, May the Lord multiply the number of his people a hundred times over. My Lord the King, aren't they all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt upon Israel? See, Job knew you don't even need, you're just trying to prop up your own ego and and your own pride. Verse 4, yet the king's order prevailed over Joab. So Joab left and traveled throughout Israel and returned to Jerusalem. Joab gave the total troop registration to David and in all of Israel, there were 1,100,000 armed men in Judah itself. And in, excuse me, and in Judah itself, 470,000 armed men. He did not include the tribes of Levi and Benjamin in account because the king's command was detestable to him. This command was also evil in God's sight, so he afflicted Israel. Anybody ever had the heavy hand of God come upon them when they've done something wrong? I have. It, it's, it's not a comfortable thing. I, I had messed up and I was, I was resisting turning away from it in, in the very early parts of me being a Christian and, and I didn't want to stop doing something and I, I was just fighting God and fighting God and fighting God and I just felt the hand of God for a week on me, just heavy on me to, to repent of this and to confess and everything else. 
And I just felt it and felt it and felt it until one day at work I just couldn't handle it anymore. I went home sick. I walked eight miles home um, and during that walk did business with God and, and confessed it. So I know what it's like when God puts his hand upon you. And some people wondering if things like September 11th, 2001, or even the COVID virus was an affliction from God. Well, we know that throughout Scripture, God uses plagues to get people's attention. I think he's got a lot of people's attention right now. We're all sitting here wearing masks. How many people want to keep wearing masks? We want to be in the church of the mask? I want to rip this thing off as, as, <laughs> as soon as possible and never wear one again. To David's credit, David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. Now please take away your servant's guilt, for I have been very foolish. Now it's admirable that, that David wakes up. It's admirable that he goes to repent here. But this has been a growing pride thing within David. You see it throughout his life in First and Second Samuel that, that he reacts violently to people that are disrespecting him. You, you see him just go off the handle a lot. Now if you think about it, David has a reason to be a little prideful here. He was about 16 years old when he took on Goliath. He was the smallest of all of the people in his family. So you're talking... I, I resemble that remark, not maybe this way, but this way. I was five foot four in high school, five foot five. It would have been like me taking on the center of the football team, and even, and even worse, and then winning that fight. That would have puffed me up like, like nobody's business, right? So he has been carrying this pride with him all these years, and it was really starting to affect his relationship with God. So David had to learn this hard lesson from God. And we look at verse 9. It says that then the Lord instructed Gad, David's seer, go and see, say to David, this is what the Lord says. I am offering you three choices. Choose one of them for yourself, and I will do it to you. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine or three years of devastation by your foes with the sword of your enemy overtaking you. Or three days of the sword of the Lord, a plague upon the land, and the angel of the Lord bringing destruction to the whole territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I should take back to the one who sent me. See, what David has to learn here, and what we have to learn, is that sin is always painful in the end. And pain for sin is even worse. If you think about it, it needs to be painful, doesn't it, so that we learn. Otherwise, we never learn that that temporary thrill we got from the sin isn't worth paying the price of the pain later. I mean, when you were raising kids or when you were little and you messed up, your daddy didn't give you a sucker, he gave you a switch for your own good to help that lesson to, to well, be whacked into you. Now, if you're David, put yourself in David's spot. Do you choose? How do you choose? Three years of famine? Three months of, of war? Or three days of plague? Let me read the rest of the narrative here and, and listen to David's responses. David answered Gad, I am in anguish. 
Please let me fall into the Lord's hands because his mercies are very great, but don't let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel and 70,000 Israelite men died. Then God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it, but when the angel was about to destroy the city, the Lord looked, relented concerning the destruction, and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand now. And the angel of the Lord was then standing on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. When David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven with his drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem, David and the elders, covered in sackcloth, fell face down. And David said to God, Wasn't it I, I the one who gave the order to count the people? I am the one who has sinned and acted very wickedly. But these, these people are sheep. What have they done? Lord my God, please let your hand be against me and my father's family. But don't let this plague be against your people. So the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go down and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Gad went up at Gad, or David went up at Gad's command, spoken in the name of the Lord. Ornan was threshing wheat when he turned and saw the angel. His four sons who were with him hid. David came to Ornan, and when Ornan looked and saw David, he left the threshing floor and bowed to David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Give me this threshing floor plot so that I may build an altar to the Lord on it. Give me it for full price so that the plague on the people may be stopped. Ornan said to David, Take it. My lord the king may do whatever he wants. See, I give the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sled for the wood and the wheat for the grains offerings. I give it all to you. King David answered Ornan, No, I insist on paying full price, for I will not take for the Lord what belongs to you or offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David gave Ornan 15 pounds of gold for the plot. He built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord and he answered with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offerings. And then the Lord spoke to the angel and he put his sword back into his sheath. At that time, David offered sacrifices there when he saw that the Lord answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Why is this story in the Bible? Have you ever asked yourself, you know, what is God trying to speak to me when I read something in the Bible? What specifically is Ezra trying to teach us? Well, something that brings all of this together for us. Ezra is relaying to the people the history of the temple and why it was located, where it was located. If you remember, we said at the beginning of the message, the original temple was destroyed. I mean, it was just, when we say destroyed, not one brick was left upon another, and the bricks themselves were ground to dust. I mean, they really, really did a, did a great demolition job in absolutely destroying the temple. Before it was destroyed, the law of Moses talked about the tabernacle, which they then built the temple. It was a dwelling place of God on earth. It was a one place they were allowed to make sacrifices to atone for their sins and for the sins of the people. 
So this is why it was critical for them to rebuild this temple. It was the centerpiece of their worship. Really, the Jewish person cannot worship without that temple and, and follow the Torah. So Ezra wants them to understand why the temple was built where it was. And this is a story that begins to explain that to them. The angel of the Lord stops his plague at the threshing floor of Ornan. Now, if you don't know what a threshing floor is, it's usually a place somewhere, generally on top of, a, of an elevated area or a hill, and they would take the wheat and they would break it up and they would throw it in the air. The kernels would fall straight down, but the wind would take the chaff away so they could separate out the grain from the, the rest of it. And the big reason that Ezra brings this up is the threshing floor of Ornan was located on Mount Moriah. Now you say, well, what, what's, what's up with Mount Moriah? Because of what happened there 1,500 years earlier. Genesis 22, that's your homework assignment. Read Genesis 22, where God says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and sacrifice him to me there. So Abraham obeys God and takes Isaac to Mount Moriah where he ties Isaac to an altar that he built. And he raises the knife to kill his one and only son, the son of the promise that he had waited for for decades. He's getting ready to obey God and, and do that. And God says, Abraham, stop. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Now that I know you will not withhold anything from me because you did not withhold your only son. And God then provided them a lamb to sacrifice instead. You say, well, why is all of this important? Ezra wants people to know why the ground of the Temple Mount is a holy place. The angel of the Lord was stopped there in David's time. A lamb was provided there in the place of Isaac, the son of Abraham, and a third reason that we're going to get to in just a second. Ezra wants us to know that this census and plague story, he wants us to know about it because it's our story. Like David, we've all done things to puff up our pride from time to time. We may never have been tempted to commit adultery, we may never have murdered somebody, but we've all given into temptations to commit little sins. Sins of gossip, sins of white lies, sins of, of maybe wasting time at work or, or whatever it is. And we know that we're, it's wrong when we did them, but we chose to do, this and do them anyway. And Ezra is reminding us that little sins mattered and still have to be atoned for. We see here that a little sin caused great sorrow and the price of 70,000 men. All because of the vanity of one leader. So what's the lesson for us today? Ezra is teaching us about God's forgiveness, what it looks like when what happens when we repent. Ezra is teaching us about the costliness of sin. In this case, one man's sin, which didn't even seem to be that big of a deal. It was just a little pride. But that one man's sin cost 70,000 other men their lives. Sometimes we think that what we do in the privacy of our own minds or in our own lives is just between us and God. It's just a little sin. It won't hurt anybody. 
All we have to do anyway is just ask God for forgiveness. And the Bible says or tells us and shows us here that no sin is just a little sin. David's sin was small, personal, but it was still incredibly costly. And God's response to it was creative, instructive, and ultimately merciful. God gave David the choice. What do you want? Three years of war, three months of plague, or three months of famine, or three days of plague. God gave David a choice because he wants David to take responsibility for his own retribution. So God, or so David chooses. He chooses the option that allows for God's mercy. He said, I'd rather fall into God's hands than men's hands. So the plague starts. And people end up dying. And as the numbers mount, David finally realizes the magnitude of his sin. He says, I did this. I caused this to happen. And what happened to David's heart is a roadmap to restoration and revival with God. And Ezra uses this story to teach us how to reconcile with God when we've disobeyed him. It's a simple process. We have to admit our sin. David said, wasn't I the one who gave the order to count the people? He's saying, it was my fault. I caused this. God relents when we repent. The second thing is to take responsibility for your actions. David did that. He said, Lord, my God, please let your hand be against me and against my father's family and stop this plague. You see that change in David's heart. Before the plague started, he said, don't let me fall into human hands. After the plague starts, he said, let your hand be against me. I was the one that was responsible. Every restart, every revival begins with people repenting, with people taking responsibility. We have to own what we've done and be willing to shoulder the responsibility for the harm that we've caused, no matter how unpleasant it may be. Ezra's third lesson to us is that once we accept responsibility, we need to make things right. So how do we do that? In verse 18, So the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go and set up the altar of the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He tells David to do something. Was it a hard thing for David to build an altar? Probably not. A couple hours work, gathering rocks, maybe a little bit of wood. But still, David obeys God in what he told him to do. And the most important lesson of this chapter is remember that this is Mount Moriah. We went into that just a moment ago for a reason. It's the place that God provided the lamb for Abraham. It's the place where the, the angel of the Lord was stopped from um, continuing the plague. And it was a foreshadowing of when Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be sacrificed for our sins on Mount Moriah. You see, this entire book right here is about Jesus. Everything in it points to him. From Genesis all the way to Revelation. In fact, Revelation is just the shortened way of saying the book of Revelation. The true title of the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the title of this whole book, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Revival and restoration need to begin and be all about Jesus in our lives, our church, and our communities. We have to understand that it is all about Him. I'm going to close with something that might seem very obvious to some and maybe not to others. All indications point to that the next few years may be a little rough. And so I came to church to feel better. I got to tell you the truth. I think many of us put our hope in the wrong thing. And we trusted in someone or something that was just as fallible as King David, if not worse. I'm not being critical if people think I'm speaking about President Trump, I'm not. I'm being critical of the whole thing. And I'm being most critical about our focus on it. The church is supposed to be about proclaiming Jesus, not just being a voting block for the Republican Party. It's supposed to be about showing him to the world. And I think if we get that right, no matter what the world throws at us in the next few years, we'll come out just fine on the other end. We're going to remind ourselves of this by taking communion.